architects that had to be businessmen, had to be journalists, had to be uh, psychoanalysts, had to be artists, had to be everything. And so from a cognitive perspective, they presented a wide array of skills that would be ideal to be studied under the microscope. Welcome to Arcanic Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia, and this week I'm speaking with Pierluigi Sarayuno, architect and author of The Creative Architect. In the late 1950s, some of the most prominent architects of the day gathered in Berkeley, California, to take part in a landmark psychological experiment on creativity. Eero Saarinen, Philip Johnson, Richard Neutra, William Pereira, and dozens of other architects were put through a barrage of tests and surveys to gain a better understanding of what creativity is and its place in architecture. For the first time, data and results of this study are now available in Sarayino's book. We spoke about the context of psychological research in the 1950s and the ongoing evolution of the creative architect. Pierluigi Sarayino, thank you so much for joining us on One to One. I'm so glad to feature this book, The Creative Architect, a super fascinating study done by psychologists in the 1950s around the nature of creativity, specifically of architects, studying some of the most famous architects at the time and trying to figure out exactly how their creativity manifests and what creativity is. So to go back in time, about 50 years in psychological history, could you kind of set the stage for what the general psychological consensus was um, at the era of the study in the late 1950s around what creativity was, what it meant? As a premise, I am an architect. I'm a practicing architect. I'm not a psychology, a psychoanalyst. Uh, and uh, when I approached this uh, research, I was fairly green. I learned quite a bit along the way. My surrogate mentor was Ravenna Helson, who was one of the researchers uh, in the Institute of Personality Assessment and Research at Berkeley. And uh, really, at the time, uh, we're talking about initially 1950, there was uh, a consensus that creativity was something that could be studied in a scientific fashion. Much of the interest of the medical community was into pathology, and that's a fairly uh, well-known fact. But later in the century, interest shifted or expanded to include uh, uh, the healthy individual functioning in particular optimal circumstances. And one of that was creativity. And creativity became somewhat of an object of, of obsession in the context of uh, also of the Cold War as uh, the Soviets uh, had reached the space age later in uh, the 50th decade. And uh, there was already an understanding that intelligence uh, correlated up to a certain point, uh, meaning that uh, being more intelligent uh, reached a certain threshold did not equate to being more creative. Uh, there was something else uh, that was playing out in this particular inner motion of uh, feelings of, of the sort of psychodynamic. And uh, there are some, uh, you know, cultural circumstances, but also historical circumstances. Many of these uh, scientists that had been uh, in the field of psychology were recruited in uh, the World War II effort. And uh, a great number of them was at the uh, Office of Strategic Services in D.C., which was, you know, the former CIA. And so there is a, a part of the military-industrial complex that um, spilled over into research aims that were not tied to any kind of military benefits or military advantage. 
So the shift uh, went from uh, effectiveness, uh, the idea of finding individuals, identifying individuals that could uh, perform uh, in uh, situations of, of great duress, uh, uh, take responsibilities, uh, uh, leadership in uh, resistance groups, uh, espionage, uh, and roles of this nature. And then uh, adopting some of those methods. And in this case, uh, what was very popular at the time was the assessment method and use it to study creativity. In the 50s, uh, one of the biggest uh, obstacles was to find representative sample groups. It is uh, easier to retroactively try to reconstruct the circumstances of creativity through secondary sources, uh, literature, you know, secondhand accounts, or also, in a way, journaling. But this kind of self-reporting has also some limits, uh, um, you know, how accurate are these memories? So the arriving at samples that were statistically significant became uh, a major target to yield uh, reliable findings. And so there were previous studies that were uh, fairly circumscribed uh, about studying creative characters uh, through interviews. But again, interview setting has its own limits. It's accounting of things that have happened in the past. The researcher gets a sense of the personality, but it's pretty much it. This one uh, that happened in Berkeley was the first systematic, uh, to my knowledge, and just looking at the literature, at this scale, where they really targeted the creative person, identified through a series of uh, screening processes, that were, which were quite rigorous uh, in the context of doing something that is rigorous. Uh, you know, there are still human beings involved. So the human factor, as we know it today, exists uh, in the scientific enterprise as well. And uh, they decided to pick people at the top of their field. And uh, they had enough funding to have them come to Berkeley in weekends, three-day weekends. And the study of the architects was... Uh, probably the most uh, revered, well-known, uh, sought after because of the nature of the characters that were involved into the study. So before we get too much deeper into the actual study, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the person behind the study. And you referenced briefly the kind of backstory to a lot of the psychological research going on in the mid-century um, as related to the military-industrial complex of having this a lot of psychologists being involved in the war. And specifically, the leader of this study, Donald McKinnon, was selected by the government to help screen potential spies um, and kind of counterinsurgents to aid efforts overseas. Can you tell me a little bit more about Don's work in particular and how he first started being, becoming interested in, in architects in particular? So Donald McKinnon was originally from Maine. Uh, he got his uh, education in New England. Uh, and in the 1930s, uh, he got exposed to Harvard psychology, Harry Murray, who had his own lab and he started using this idea of the methods. Uh, Harry Murray was also uh, recruited as part of the OSS, but there was a, an age difference. Murray was older and was more advanced, was already accomplished by 1930s. There was uh, a shift 
shift uh, in that uh, period to the idea of personality, that, that, that the person, the individual, uh, had something to, was a repository of information that needed to be retrieved in some form. Also, McKinnon uh, uh, met uh, with Jung, Carl Gustav Jung. Uh, he was interested in the work of uh, uh, Otto Ranks. So Otto Rank, and he did uh, go to Europe and, and trying to visit as many of these folks as possible. And in the war, because of his uh, uh, previous relationship with Murray, he was uh, recruited to be part of the um, OSS team that was going to study or at least to find a, a method to identify the folks that would do these special missions. And uh, shortly after the Station S, uh, which is the one that was essentially done, I believe, in Virginia, I can't remember right now specifically, uh, he became the head of uh, that unit. And so all the way to the war. So he had this method down. And at the end of the war, he co-wrote, but mainly wrote himself, a book called The Assessment of Man that uh, encapsulated the experience uh, the logic behind it, also the limits of uh, of that experience, and uh, a number of these uh, individuals, uh, together with McKinnon, uh, arrived in Berkeley in 1949. Some of them went to Stanford. Some of them uh, stayed in Berkeley. Another one that is important is David Sanford, who was in Berkeley for a while. And they were in Berkeley for a while until there was the year of the oath, which was a, this very famous episode where scientists had to essentially pledge allegiance to the institution, saying that they had no ties to the Communist Party. A number of uh, folks defected, and one of the biggest uh, uh, losses uh, for UC Berkeley was uh, Eric Erickson, who had helped to found uh, the Institute for Personality Assessment Research in 1949, but then slowly moved uh, to more of his own interest in child psychology and then uh, ultimately went to the Northeast. So McKinnon was very plugged in into the debate of uh, psychology. He wasn't necessarily Freudian, he was more Jungian, but he was trying to reconcile more of these uh, traditions. And again, he never really studied pathology. He studied the, the healthy individual and creativity remained uh, initially effectiveness and before that personality remained his, his primary focus. So that's where he put all his intellectual ambition, um, research effort and political influence uh, to gather funds and for the purpose of this particular study of the architects, he became the primary spokesperson. The reason why he was so interested in architects was that because he had identified three types of creatives, those that were you know, in the arts, so that they were essentially activating their intuitive traits more than others. And those were the obvious artists would be in that category. And it was the second type that was the the creative scientists, uh, people that were exposed into their own discipline, but there was active reasoning and somehow they were uh, interested in organizing the material in alternative ways. And then there were people that were a bit of both. And he put the architects into that uh, category. So for him, the architect had to encompass so many skills in the process of uh, doing what he or she does. And, you know, in the in the time, it was all men that they were uh, involved. And he was very explicit about uh, about that in terms of, uh, you know, that's what, that's what we have. He, he had admitted it. Actually, he said it later in his life. There were more women uh, in the writer's group and the children's uh, uh, writer's book. 
intrinsic books writer and things like that. So, but architects had to be businessmen, had to be journalists, had to be uh, psychoanalysts, had to be artists, had to be everything. And so from a cognitive perspective, they presented a wide array of skills that would be ideal to be studied under the microscope. And the actual architects recruited for the study are just an incredible roster of the most famous practicing architects of their day, although while not all of them that were invited were actually able to participate. But just to rattle off some of the names, the study included Philip Johnson, Errol Saarinen, Charles Eames, Paul Rudolph, A. Quincy Jones, Richard Neutra, William Pereira, and that isn't even half of them. Um, how many architects total participated in the study and how were they particularly chosen? So 40 architects came to Berkeley in groups of 10. They were chosen in a very meticulous way. When the IPAR folks sought grants uh, and they received a, a very generous one through the Carnegie uh, Corporation, they specifically said, we are not going to choose uh, the people at the top of their game ourselves. We're going to ask a, a panel of experts to pick those and then uh, get the selection process going. And we will study the chosen individuals once uh, that selection has been done and people have accepted so at the time, the most powerful figure in uh, architectural circles in Northern California was uh, uh, William Worcester, who was the, the dean of the architecture school from 1950 to 1963, um, I believe. And uh, he, at the time, was approached by McKinnon and asked to help in this project. And so Worcester recruited four faculty members so there was, there was a five-member panel on which he was, uh, you know, kind of the head, although technically they would be in a sort of horizontal role and responsibility. So it was Bill Worcester, it was Joe Escherich, Donald Olson, Bernard DeMar, and Philip Thiel, who was more of a naval architect that had just been brought in, you know, to join the UC faculty. And um, there's a sixth member that it's uh, unofficial, but was equally consequential, and that is uh, Elizabeth Kendall Thompson, who was the West Coast uh, editor of Architectural Record from 1947 to 1975, who coached very, in a very caring way. She was truly invested into the question, and she's, she was a truly remarkable activist, uh, a wonderful woman, a wonderful writer. And she coached uh, McKinnon in all architectural questions. At some point, she even wrote the, the definition of architectural creativity. Uh, that we reported into the book as a, a way to uh, establish what, what creativity in architecture in this particular field meant. And so these uh, five uh, members individually filled out these forms and they came up with their names, each other list of names. And, you know, I remember I spoke uh, with uh, Don Olson, uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, and uh, but I, I, for many years I was quite close. And he was telling me that uh, he had suggested the name of Paul Nelson, who was a very, very important architect, uh, American architect, who had moved to Paris, and he was going to be back in uh, the U.S. And he said, to my greatest surprise, nobody had ever heard of Paul Nelson. And uh, uh, the fact that... Uh, 
you know, as informed as these folks were, that uh, you have a, a series of characters that might escape this uh, the casting of the net of who could be the most uh, important architect. It's kind of an important thing. And in fact, in the book, I outline some of the names that have been missed out. For example, uh, Frederick Kiesler. I mean, it's hard to imagine that Kiesler is not considered a creative architect. I mean, I would define anyone. You might not like his work, but he was definitely creative. And uh, then there are strict ideological lines that had to be that could not be crossed. They could not agree on thinking that Bruce Goff was a creative architect. But to a large extent, that was because uh, Don Olson was so steeped into the Bauhaus uh, set of uh, principles and ideology was such a, a devout. Uh, committed believer in Gropius that there was no space for the work uh, of organic uh, strand. So even though they had good words for Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, it was never going to to fly. So uh, anyone associated with, uh, you know, same thing, Alden Dow uh, of Michigan that they tried to recruit and, and others, anyone that had some relationship with Frank Lloyd Wright would not fare well. That's so fascinating because it seems so ironic that in a study of creativity, there would be such a staid ideological bent, that there wouldn't be any swaying from this particular understanding that the, this is the kind of successful architect that we're targeting as a subject of study. And just in general, how you would then want to create a, a, a reliable sample group of somewhat comparable participants to take part in the study without also deferring to a diversity of styles. Yeah, and that is uh, that is when we, you know you try to do this in a very objective way, but then there are human factors. Uh, why would you not uh, bring in someone of that caliber? And at the same time, you know there was uh, you know one of the criteria for the study was that the architects had to be in the United States. They didn't have necessarily to be American, but at the time of the study, they had to be in the United States. So there is an evaluation of Alvar Alto, and everybody says Alvar Alto is the greatest. Actually, primarily Worcester, but Werner Demar is there, and uh, Joe Eschrich, and Donaldson is the, uh, the only one that's a little more restrained because uh, he's a, a total Gropius fan. But that makes you understand why you see Berkeley enabled a particular development in architectural culture that was closer to some attachment to the land, some way of uh, specializing a uh, relationship with the organic and anything that to do on the industrial basis. Uh, you could see in the evaluation of Corinne Waxman that, uh, you know, I encourage you to, to see the one that I sent you, you know, the guy is only interested in joinery. Well, but that <laughs> is an aspect of, uh, of the work uh, that you would say is the same in Mies and Charles Eames. So there are factions uh, which are not necessarily uh, clashing. They're simply uh, identifying a particular aspect of the architectural making and developing an architectural expression and uh, an ideology, you know, a world of uh, uh, cause and effect and consequences and uh, formalism. So that to me was really, really powerful, really powerful to understand what they were thinking. And they took this uh, exercise in earnest. So there was that. And then uh, the uh, architectural editors go through the same exercise. And an aspect that, that took place was that it was clear that for many, creativity had some certain 
correlation in the amount of uh, uh, press that you were going to get. But you have to think that there are some creative architects who absolutely do not care about the press. And uh, Mark Mills was one here, Beverly Thorne, who is the last surviving architect of the Case Study House program, has no interest whatsoever in the press. Uh, Gaudi only had two articles in the Avery Index, uh, you know, at the time of the study, actually at the time of his death, and then Irving Gill had virtually no coverage. So are these architects non-creative? And, and you know, you simply you don't want to say uh, that what's right, what's wrong. You simply identify holes in this monolithic approach to studying something. But to counteract that, the IPAR team tried to find some statistical correlation. Let's say, okay, so we have these uh, these uh, architects that have been rated by panel members, and then have been rated by the editors, and then they also asked the architects that participated to rank themselves. And that was extraordinary. That was absolutely mind-boggling because they sign the paper and you know when you look at the guest book that the signature is the same. They did it themselves first and you really see the hierarchy of how they understood themselves. So out of the 40 architects, 32 returned the form. So we don't have the one by George Nelson or Richard Neutra, you know, which is really unfortunate. But uh, we, we got some really amazing uh, uh, characters that returned the form. <laughs> Bill Dow, you know, Louis Kahn. If you look at the way Kahn writes it, the number eight, it's astonishing. There's so much clarity and so much serenity. And and, uh, you know, he doesn't put himself number one, but, you know, of course, Johnson is going to put himself as number <laughs> one and Sarian number one and a number of other characters. So when you do that, not, not only you're having you're looking at also at the at, at, in this particular study, but this was a, a cross section of where the so much idealized uh, mid-century modern was. They were all, they had uh, identified 86 uh, characters uh, in which they, they extended a little more because someone else brought up some names uh, and one of those names was Victor Lundy. And so uh, Victor Lundy ultimately was uh, brought in and part of the study. But, you know, they, they go through Yamasaki, they go through Victor Gruen, they go through everybody. And so you know where people stand. You know who was really in the main at the time. We know, we know the geopolitical map <laughs> in architecture across the United States. You, you know where Peter Berluski stood, which was, uh, you know, he was in uh, an extraordinary level of reverence. Uh, he was considered top-notch. And today it's hard to, to find someone who knows Peter Berluski unless you're, you know, part of the, the circles of architecture. I mean, it's not a mainstream name by any stretch of the imagination. So through the course of the three days where all these architects are gathered and taking place and are taking part in the study, do you happen to know what their living situation was and whether they were kind of socializing amongst themselves in between the study or, or whether there was control for that in the actual study? Those that were coming from out of town, they were being housed at the uh, Claremont Hotel. So they were being picked up uh, at the airport uh, and they got some letters. Uh, like, for example, Claude Stoller, who is still around with us, the brother of Ezra Stoller, was going to pick up uh, Louis Kahn and uh, Don Olson was going to pick up Sir Shermayev. They all came and uh, the assessment schedule shows you that they spent most of their time uh, at IPAR, just going through these testing. And uh, what happens is that uh, they, the architects were studied both when they were doing, going through the procedures and when they were informally talking to each other. It was a, a sort of a 
tour de force of uh, human policing. <laughs> they wanted to understand how they were when they were under, you know, outside of uh, such rigid scrutiny and they were aware of it, how they were interacting with each other. So for architects to come, the real reason to a large extent was to socialize. Most likely we're going to be in some kind of a committee. We were going to be client representatives uh, for the government, for the private sector, and they were going to give each other's projects. So when, when Sarian finally decided to come everybody wanted to come <laughs> and then uh, uh victor landing right away yes i'm coming uh, i can't wait to meet sarinan and stuff like that and then you know even charles Eames was he was supposed to come but he couldn't he couldn't be on a friday but he could arrive on a saturday that would have compromised the, the nature of the data mm. and yamasaki was scheduled to come and then he couldn't at the last minute so let's talk about a little bit more of the actual studies and the kind of tests or evaluations that were going on to try to form this idea of creativity. Can you tell me a little bit about the different ways that the architects were tested and evaluated? The, there was one graphic test, uh, which is the mosaic test, and uh, it had been widely reported uh, that in early conversations uh, or early speeches by Charles Eames about the mosaic test, where uh, Philip Johnson was asked uh, how many colors he had used, uh, you had 22 colors you could choose from to fill out uh, an 8 by 10 uh, grid, and you had to fill out with, uh, the whole thing with the tiles. And he said, you know, I only use two colors, black and white. And then they asked Sarah, who was next to him, Arrow, how many colors did you use? He said, I used only white. And I found all those mosaics all nicely put together. And so that was the only procedure that would allow some kind of aesthetic message. The others were tests that were in nature trying to elicit some kind of lateral thinking. For example, they had a set of drawings that they had to do based on given lines, you know, two converging lines, and they had to make up as many, as many images as possible that were credible, you know, not letters, the images of things out of those two lines. They had to tell stories uh, about ink blots. It was called the Rorschach test. And, uh, you know, people that think in very conventional manners will come up with stories are immediately obvious as you look at, the, at a particular image. But some people that are really the quite out there, they make up extraordinary stories that are tied in some form to that image, but they go on a totally different tangent. And they could be credible. Statistically, it might be unlikely, but it is possible. And uh, then there was... Um, Another one about uh, the remote association test, which was, uh, you know, they were given, actually, there was one called word association test, where uh, they were given a word about something, and then they would have to correlate, associate another word that could have to do with, uh, with a particular, that particular word. And one example that is important, because uh, later this test was developed further by one of the scientists uh, that was at the beginning of his career there, Sarnoff Mednick. And he said, uh, uh, you know, he, he did this, the same experiment in Minnesota. And he said, you know, we, if you, we got a, a thousand students uh, and uh, uh, they had, uh, we, we showed them a table and then uh, we asked them to do, you know, to associate a word. And they said, okay, 800 of them used the word chair and uh, 100 used or plate. So you, you go statistically to, to answers are infrequent, but then they're still tied to the table. And then there are a few that say some extraordinary things, totally off the mark, but they're still tied to the table. And so that became, in a way, an aspect that was uh, central in the findings. It's just that you are tied to a real situation, a real thing, but you are giving a response that is not patterned in a standard way.
way. And, and, and that would, is what singles out to a large extent the creative person in what is called the creative product. So, you know, the, in order to, to discuss creativity, you have to define it. So that was, uh, so those were some of the procedures. Many of them were, were about check marks. Uh, there was the adjective checklist uh, for self and ideal, meaning that they were from, from, I don't know, 200 adjectives. They had to choose those that applied to themselves and that, that would apply to the ideal architect. And uh, ironically, while they thought that this ideal architect was uh, this uh, super individual that was always cordial, was sexy, was uh, dandy, was this and that. They portrayed themselves as somewhat neurotic, flawed, uh, anxious, uh, and it was uh, uh, almost across the board. So there was an anxiety that seemed to be inconsistent with the image they had of the people, you know, the kind of ideal that they were trying to reach themselves. And they were them. They were the ideal architect to the eyes of the world. So right there, you, you have a way to declare aspects of your psychic turbulence that become really interesting and in many respects redeem all of us who have whatever we have internally, but we can still function in the field of our choice. That's so fascinating because you think also about the elevation of the architect as a status or as a celebrity today and how it has so much to do still with that kind of ego and that swagger where the media context, of course, has changed so drastically around architecture within those last last 50 years between the study and now, but that there is still this expectation that the architect might be that kind of egotist. I wonder if it's still the same that they're all just closeted, ang- anxious... Uh... <laughs> Anxious people. I wouldn't be surprised. That is one of the reasons why, specifically in the context of architecture, I find that the study is telling us a, a, a lasting story. But the book, uh, as I said in a number of uh, other exchanges, is really about creativity because uh, the focus of the IPAR wasn't wasn't architecture, it was creativity. And they access in a number of different ways. And there are certain core traits that are part of the creative process. And then there are some specific things that are more tied to the architectural world. But to a great extent, the creative person is an individual who has enormous belief in the foregone conclusion of his or her own reasoning. I mean, there is no discussion that this is the way it's going to be. And so this sense of destiny that of how things are going to come is scripted in everything that they do. In the many of these uh, architects were already masterful in the handling of the media, because what the media does, among other things, is it buttresses the authority of the proper name, and therefore that mobilizes capital and mobilizes fundraising and things like that. It's very difficult to have a patron to put money on a building that has an acronym. I mean, unless it's a, a OMA, but even then they use Remkulas, right? You need to have an individual with legs and a heart and, and, and a voice that it becomes becomes the symbol of a particular way of being in the world and taking care of this particular project. And so there's something extraordinarily specific about the architectural enterprise. But creativity in general is uh, is a universally spread uh, possibility that we, all of us have access to. And that is uh, the other really overwhelming message, which is so positive, so rich in consequences. All of us are born creative. We all are able to pick up uh, languages, uh, learn to walk, uh, um, do imaginary play, and we progressively lose that capacity. And the creative is someone that has kept a, a healthy relationship with that initial way of being in the world. I'd like to also ask then about how 
within the last 50 years, how the incredible changes in just the way psychological research is conducted and the tools at the psychologist's disposal of whether it's for studying brainwaves and actual having like a neuroscientific angle to the psychological research, or whether just the ethical standards have changed in such a way that would make it more restrictive to do studies like this. Could you speculate perhaps a little bit about how, if a study like this were to be done today, how kind of the basic tests would have differed? The very first uh, Achilles heel of the study is that these architects were taken out of their natural setting. We don't know how Erosirinen was acting in his office. We actually know we have a lot of uh, folks that work there that are still around. They can tell us. Uh, but a lot of the procedures, the testing is done you know, in an artificial, in a kind of a lab condition. And uh, while you're in the place where you actually have to display the traits that you have, there are, it, it, you have a much higher chance to get a closer answer that is lasting and veritable. In the context, for example, of the IPAR study, uh, we found some recordings uh, about the group discussions. And these recordings uh, were really quite extraordinary. And one of them was the ethics problem. And the ethics problem was about uh, the core, the interference of the client uh, on the architect's judgment and expert knowledge. So there is a client uh, that has this huge project. Uh, the client is very happy with what the architect has done. However, there is one piece that needs to be changed and he can only be changed in a certain way and the artist has tried as hard as he could to have him change his mind but that the client doesn't relent he's about to call what are you going to do you might lose the job if you don't do what he says and at that moment uh, lots of things happen in the room uh, in the session of Saren and Saren said we are dealing with this situation right now and Phil Johnson said, oh, the one you told me about, yes, I'm coming, I'm going back on Monday and I have to deal with the, with the client. To have him saying it there is one thing. To have us sitting next to Saren and confronting the client is another thing. Now you're seeing how he's doing it, how he's using body language, what kind of a syntactic construct he's using, what kind of pace he's using in his words, what he's wearing, where this conversation is taking place. Is it in the office? Is it the client's office? Is it in a neutral place? All these are parts of the, the data set that would help understand his personality makeup. So that's a limit. Also, there is a profound skepticism today after you know the rise of science studies 20 years ago about the authority of the lab and the scientists. You know, you can create what Michel Foucault would call regimes of truth by saying, oh, you know, uh, if you eat carrots uh, seven times a day, you're going to live 150 years old, till 150 years old. And then you see that the whole industry of carrots uh, becomes super rich. And then they realize two years later, no, well, actually, we realize that carrots decrease the life expectancy. And then the whole carrots uh, industry uh, plunges. So science is not infallible. And that is uh, further fuels uh, the skepticism that architects would have in doing this. Because they, you know, at the time, McKinnon had to do a lot of convincing to get the architects to come out. And probably the most vociferous against this was Philip Johnson, who was the most articulate, by far, brilliant in his rhetoric. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I'm not a big fan of his work, but I think his intellectual uh, finesse uh, is uh, truly admirable. And so he was fanning off... Uh, 
McKinnon's argument. And he said, you know, I don't think he does anything at all to study this phenomenon. But they were able to retrieve some data. Also, you know, they could try to do this in a, in a form of a survey. But IPAR itself did a follow-up survey twice, after 20 years and after 25 years, to see, and these are called longitudinal studies, to see if these folks were you know, were confirming the data that had been retrieved. And, and they did. They were very vital, those that were still in practice, uh, many of them in their 70s and early 60s. And uh, the same temperament, uh, they were trying to give a room to younger partners. But uh, those didn't happen in the context of a three-day weekend. The researchers went uh, out there and then they interviewed them. It was a, a much lower uh, kind of level of in participation. So what's, what singles out this study in such an extreme extraordinary way was the level of intensity, the orchestration of it, the, the characters that came in, what they did after that, that the artists kept asking, so what are we learning from this? And McKinnon was still tentative about that. And in this respect, uh, what makes uh, my book different from what McKinnon would have written, which I'm sure I don't have a, a you know background in psychology, so the, the nomenclature, the language is not there from a technical perspective, but the basic concepts came across repeatedly in a number of papers, is that I could actually assign a proper name to a particular statement. And there's nothing profoundly embarrassing at all. These are wonderful moments of uh, confessional moments of realization of, of things that you do or what motivates you to do what you do. I found uh, this is something really moving, really profoundly touching at so many levels. Uh, to hear the struggle of Louis Kahn to emerge from the conditions of his childhood was you know, a kind of a tearful moment. And um, there's a lot to be said about that. So I have tremendous admiration for these gentlemen who were able to keep at bay their demons, like all of us we have in some form, and make something beautiful out of their lives. Whether you like their work or not, but they put themselves at the driver's seat. And that is a message that, in a way, that's the message that the, the book ends, is the courage. You know, you have to have the courage to act on your intuition. Give yourself the credit to do the things that you want to do. Act on it. So as a practicing architect, how did you first come across this study and decide to research it enough to write a book about it? So architecture works a bit like law. It's all about uh, reference cases, uh, where we come from, uh, what we have done. And we either embrace it or react to it, but somehow we have a relationship with that past. So with Modernism Rediscovered, I, there was my thesis at UCLA working on the artists of Julius Schulman. I realized uh, how uh, enormous the participation to the project of modernity was and how much we do not know. Now, we focus on 20 names, but there are 2,000 names of people that were doing really wonderful work. You know, one of the biggest uh, falsity of architecture is that the work speaks for itself. By Absolutely not. <laughs> you need to have a photography, you need to have an infrastructure of the work. Yeah, if you if you bump into the work, yes, but not, not that many people know all the work of Smith and Williams, which is phenomenal. And so many other parts of the, of the United States. The North Kalmad expanded that in reshaping the role of California, or Northern California, in the project of California modernism. As I was doing North Kalmad, I met Don Olson, and Don told me about the study. And part of the reason why I do this as a practicing architect is because I constantly 
bump into this doubt that especially in Northern California, we have this full embrace of modernity. We're caught into the vernacular of regionalism and the attachment of the land and the, and the gold rush uh, and agriculture and the barn and the shingles. I mean, there's a whole uh, vocabulary that is largely tied to the set of references. But California was uh, an extraordinary economic force throughout the world. It has always been since its birth. And so the creative architect became an obsession because I said, you know, why would someone like Saarinen, who had finished General Motors and, and, and Johnson, who had done the Seagull, would come all the way to Berkeley? They were losing money by the second. Why would they do that? Why do they care? And as I dug into it, there was so much richness into that. So I could not let go. I actually spent almost 10 years with this material. And, you know, the book was, was written in one year. But, you know, doing the research, uh, going back to the archive, nagging people about what's going on, how do you know about this? And also noticing the blank faces of people that, that just couldn't quite understand what to do with this material. It's, it was exotic uh, but, and entertaining, but not structural to their interests. So... Circumstances changed. Adam Rapp, my much cherished uh, senior editor at Monacelli, was the same as Norcal Mott. was in New York. I showed him the material. He immediately understood what I was talking about and set this whole thing in motion. We uh, brought in Brett McFadden and Geoff Kaplan uh, here from the Bay Area. Uh, we met and we, you know, we were ready to go and we did it. And that's what you have. It's such a great contribution to any, I think, any practicing architect's library to have something that can they can keep referring to as the way that we measure these kinds of valued characteristics, but also how they might change and how now there's always going to be the untold stories of people that, for whatever reason, were left out of the historical dialogue. To end the conversation, and based on the research and all the time you've spent putting the book together, I'd like to hear if you have any advice for the average practicing architect, how they might work to maintain their own sense of creativity and encourage it throughout their own practice. You know, it's, it will sound trite and maybe new agey, but just listen to yourself. Give more credit to your own intuition. Do not repress uh, that what could be and, and uh, leaves with serenity the leap into the unknown. Uh, judgment is the worst, probably the most uh, impactful crusher of creativity. And, you know, it makes you think that whether or not we should have competitions uh, or awards because uh, you, you are messaging, uh, sending messages of defeat. But the endless exploration, this uh, scooping from yourself, uh, any possible ways of doing things is such a rich experience. Uh, it, you know, we choose architecture as a one way of expressing that force, but that is everywhere. So I, I want to give credit to, to the individual to think uh, in more benevolent terms about his or her own ability to, to do work that is meaningful to her and to others, you know. Thank you so much. Well, Pierluigi, Sarah, you know, it's been wonderful speaking with you. And thank you so much for your thoughts on the book and, and creativity for architects. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions one-to-one -one with Pierluigi Serraino. Dana Lovoinov edits our podcast, and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. -one. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at arcconnect.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>